You are listening to E.ON. AEON.net.au You are listening to the TER podcast, the Teachers Education Review. everyone and welcome to the Teachers Education Review, the Australian podcast for teachers that bridges the gap between research, policy and practice. This is episode number 218, released on Friday the 14th of April 2023. I'm Cameron Malcher. In this episode, Stephen Kolber looks at digital tools for improving teacher productivity in Kolber's Corner. Tom Marnie continues his reflections on the ideology of the science of learning in Ideology and Education. And for our main feature, I speak with Kathy Mills, Len Unsworth and Laura Scholes about their recent book, Literacy for Digital Futures, discussing what it means to be literate in an increasingly digital world. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend those respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people listening to this podcast. Well, wherever you are teaching at the moment, I do hope that you had uh, an enjoyable break over the Easter long weekend. And for most states and systems around the country, it is either the middle or the very beginning of your Easter school break. So a couple of weeks to recuperate, plan, program, mark, and hopefully take some time for yourself over these couple of weeks. This episode is going online a couple of days later than usual because I had the pleasure of more daycare viruses coming home from uh, my kids' preschools and daycare and uh, have been waiting until I didn't sound like I was talking through a wall of goo uh, with a blocked nose. Though you can probably still hear I'm not 100% at the moment. It's also been a very busy time as I have taken leave for the first time in my professional career. I'm actually taking some extended leave uh, thanks to the parental leave options that are available to teachers in New South Wales. Uh, My wife and I had our third child late in 2022, and for the first time out of three children, I've actually got access to some extended parental leave to spend some time with the new arrival and also uh, while we still hunt for a daycare placement for her in the inner west of Sydney. Uh, Hopefully we've got something lined up, but it's, it's never guaranteed until it starts. So looking forward to that, I'll be on leave for most of term two and into term three. And uh, as I said, it's a first for me, first experience of having that kind of extended leave and very much looking forward to uh, the opportunities that might provide, uh, not least of all, to spend some more time with my kids over the coming months. We've got an extended episode for you this fortnight with an extended feature in the second half. So let's get straight into the first regular features for this half of the episode. And coming up first is Stephen Kolber, looking at ways to use technological tools to improve teacher productivity. So here now is Stephen Kolber with Kolber's Corner.
Hello lovely people and welcome to Colgus Corner for another go around. Um, today's a pretty easy one and I'm going to start with uh, a tool that I think uh, has been really important for what I like to think of as hacking my productivity and of course anytime we're talking about productivity I'm not necessarily assuming that I'm doing it for uh, you know <laughs> unfortunately in teaching we don't get paid extra based on how productive we are um, but also the nature of teaching is that if you don't get your work done uh, it tends to happen after dinner whilst kids have gone to bed on weekends and so forth so for me you know, trying to sell effective teacher productivity. Well, sell is probably the wrong word, um, but putting forward the importance of productivity and being quite efficient as teachers, I think is something that uh, is really important. So for me, uh, this one's come about uh, quite recently. So, you know, I'm assuming many, like many of us in Australia, we have Apple related products and iPhones and such. Um, and I've, I've always talked about accessible technology and inclusive technology and things like that. Um, and we talk about something called OCR. Um, and that used to be a really important feature that was hard to get. It was expensive. Um, and without, you know, over explaining it, um, OCR essentially is behaves like an eye and it's looking for patterns and typically patterns that represent language. So this is the kind of thing that uh, in previous years, like you might get like a translator app and you could hold it up to a street sign in Japan and it would translate it for you. That sort of technology, well, it's basically become a lot more mainstream and a lot more widespread. So we can use it as teachers really efficiently and effectively. So I'm going to tell you, firstly, today we're talking about a very simple process I use to support my writing. And for you as a teacher like me, um, I'm hoping you can... Uh, you know, help me to form ideas of how this might be useful in your own practice. So I have to read a lot of PDFs. Um, typically it's, you know, hey, read this new report or there's a new policy or, you know, we've got a new curriculum for our learning area, whatever it is. Um, so what I do is uh, I use a product called Claro Read. That's sort of the broad overarching software uh, and a particular product called Claro PDF Pro that I can get on my iPhone. So it will get, uh, using OC, OCR, which has something to do with ocular or eye or something, exact, the acronym is probably not as important as what it does. Um, and that can turn any PDF, whether it's editable text or not, into something that can be read aloud. Um, then what I do typically is I'm cleaning the house or, you know, <laughs> pushing a pram or something that doesn't involve much intellectual effort. Um, even in the car, driving around works pretty fine too is it's, it's reading out the text that I need to be reading. So as we know, the sort of the burden of knowledge is pretty significant. There's a lot of things we need to read and a lot of stuff we need to be across all the time. Um, and for me, there's a lot of things that it's kind of like, I would like to be across, um, but in the past I haven't been. So, you know, people might say stuff like, oh, well, the new, you know, the new history curriculum's up for review. Um, they've got out a discussion paper or something like that. And I always previously thought, well, that's not something that I can commit to. I just don't have time. I can't, don't have, you know, the hours to sit down and read these things. But now using this tool, uh, I get it to play it for me at a reasonable pace, probably much faster than my natural, natural, normal eyes on a page reading speed. And what I do as it sort of reads it out across the text, it highlights where it's up to. And I just pinch the two buttons on the left and right of my phone, which takes a screenshot of where they're at. Um, and because the text is highlighting as it goes, that's sort of a trigger for me that whatever was is above the highlighted element is important. So 
you know, I'm listening to, you know, the new history curriculum. It's all sounding pretty boring, but then all of a sudden they say, you know, here are the changes. Here's what we're doing differently. And they say something that particularly catches, captures my attention. And I take a screenshot using the two buttons on the side of my phone. Then once I've finished reading it, I now have a collection of screenshots and I'm hoping you're forming the connections of how this all works. Um, I've got screenshots of what I thought were important, interesting quotes. So then what I do is I go to my camera roll and you're probably starting to picture at this point that my camera roll at this point is essentially screenshots of documents, pictures of whiteboards, pictures of student posters and student workbooks. And that's pretty much it with a couple of kids photo photos of my my child in between um, but that's pretty much the whole genre of my phone at this moment I'm sure there's many of us who can relate to that so what I do is I go to the photos that I've just taken of the document that I read in inverted commas had read to me at a very fast pace I highlight the bit that's important I press copy so remembering your phone is looking at the text recognizing it as text and turning it back into something that the computer can understand Highlight the bit that, that was read just above the highlighted section. I copy that into a Google document, and then I have a document full of quotes and important moments from within a document. So I've read the whole thing. To be honest, some of it I might have vagued out as I'm walking along, cleaning the house or doing something similar. But if it's that boring that I've vagued out while I'm reading it, then it's probably not that important to me anyway, I figure. Um, so that way, whilst doing very little, occasionally reaching over to, to my phone to press some buttons, I've read an important document, I've taken quotes, and from there I can either write with them, share them, share them with other people, or kind of, you know, put them on a meeting agenda for discussion, you know. Um, if you think of how many meetings you've been in when someone says, oh, I've sh I shared that document beforehand, and you're sitting there thinking, oh, God, uh, I haven't looked at that, maybe I should lean over to my colleague and get them to s sort of summarise it for me kind of thing. Um, this is my workaround for that. So I'm hoping that's helpful as a little time-saving hack, trick, productivity, whatever the heck you want to call it. Uh, until next time, keep reading, keep writing and keep learning. And that was Stephen Kolber with Kolber's Corner. You can find him on Twitter at Stephen underscore Kolber or look for the link to his profile in the show notes for this episode at terpodcast.com. It's time to move on to our second regular segment. And Tom Marnie is back considering his reflections on the ideological position of the science of learning movement that is currently uh, quite prominent in education. Last episode, he outlined some of the ideological underpinnings of the science of learning movement and even published uh, an article about it online, which got a little bit of attention on social media. So in this episode, Tom continues his reflections and responds to some of the comments on that article. So here now is Tom Marnie with Ideology in Education. Welcome to Ideology in Education. If you listened to the last episode, you will have heard me talk a little bit about the science of learning, a little bit about its ideological nature, and also discussing some of my concerns surrounding the possibility I believe it has for limiting the practice of teachers. That episode came about as a result of a blog post that I was writing for my substack, which is called The Interruption. And I wanted to 
put into words a little bit more exactly what I'm trying to say and where my concerns lie with that movement. And so that post was released on the same day as the last episode of the TR podcast, which got a bit of attention, so much so that Education HQ got in touch with me and wanted to interview me and ask me a little bit about my thoughts and flesh that out a little bit further. Specifically, I believe, because their reader base is very highly made up of science of learning advocates. And so that got released to the public. And if you have an Education HQ subscription, you can view that article. But basically, they got a little bit of attention and got some really interesting responses. And I did just want to take a moment just to thank all of those of you who took the time to engage with my thinking and also those that challenged my thinking and to, and who critiqued it, which helped me to consider my position a little bit further and helped me to clarify my position as well. On that note, in this episode, I did want to talk about a little misunderstanding, I think, that a few people had in relation to my thinking and my writing. And that was that we should be able to disregard certain opinions and perspectives on education because they're ideological in nature. So I just want to make it clear in this episode to say that I'm not dismissing the science of learning due to its ideological nature. What I aim to do by highlighting the ideological basis of the science of learning was to essentially put it on a level playing field with other perspectives in education. What I found when I saw science of learning advocates posting online and commenting on people's posts and uh, their just general educational discourse, there was a sense of authority over the teaching profession. There was a sense of authority in relation to what it means to be a teacher and what it means to teach and what it means to be a good teacher. And I disagreed with that. And so what I wanted to do was really highlight the fact that this perspective sits at the same level as other perspectives in education. And so that it doesn't have some intrinsic authority over other perspectives in education. So my hope in releasing that blog post and talking with Education HQ and doing this podcast was in the hope of actually opening up dialogue and opening up space for alternative visions and perspectives to have a bit of voice and essentially speak back to some of the, the arrogance and authority that those within the movement have been pushing on others. One of the issues that could arise from this idea that educational perspectives and educational policy discourse and practice are founded within ideologies is the fear that it might actually enter us into some sort of relativism where we can't actually determine what is good or what is bad and what is, what is important when it comes to education. I don't believe that is the case from what I'm saying about education and what I'm saying about ideologies and their influence in education. Because though we could say that ideologies in themselves are not bad or good, the outcomes of the 
various practices and actions that people take as a result of ideologies can be critiqued. Those open up space for judgment as to whether they are desirable or not. And so this is where my whole critique of the science of learning comes in because it's an ideological position like any other, but I tried to highlight some of the limiting nature of that perspective in what it means to be a teacher and what a teacher can actually do. And I think it's really important that we consider the way that educational policy in Australia is grounded in dominant ideologies that essentially push the profession into certain ways of thinking and certain perspectives that are seen as natural, common sense and good. And what this does, it creates a tension between those that are in the profession and those determining what it means to be in the profession. And at times this can cause teachers to actually be engaging in ideological practice that doesn't align with their beliefs or what they believe is beneficial to their practice, their students and their communities. This creates a tension that potentially teachers might find too difficult to reconcile and might decide to actually just pull the pin. Now, I'm not saying that this is the reason for the teacher crisis, but I've had many conversations with older staff members who will say that teaching is not the way it used to be. And I think that is true. So what did it used to be? What did it look like? I'd encourage you, just as a a little exercise, is to try and reach out to maybe an older, more experienced educator, teacher of maybe, say, 30 years or so, someone who's been in the game for a while, and try and get a feel for what things looked like for them. I feel as though if we have more of these conversations, we can open up potential alternatives, maybe for what education can look like. If we know what it looked like before, maybe we could make it look like that again. Anyway, that sort of ended up turning into a bit of a ramble. But there you have it, a few thoughts to consider. As usual, if you have any comments or critique you want to share with me, feel free to get in touch via Twitter or send me an email. Otherwise, till next time, take care. And that was Tom Marnie with Ideology in Education. You can find him on Twitter at TomMarnieEDU or look for the link to his profile in the show notes for this episode at terpodcast.com. It's time now for Education in the News. And because we do have that extended feature, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm just going to have a quick look at one story that we're only able to talk about in this episode because of the fact this episode was delayed by a couple of days. Because just this morning, just the morning of Friday the 14th of April, it was announced that the New South Wales Secretary of Education, Georgina Harrison, is departing the position. 
Now, the story was technically leaked on social media last night that the incoming Labor government were uh, dismissing three senior public servants, the head of three different departments. But uh, whether exactly it was a dismissal, whether it was a mutually agreed departure or whatever terminology might be used, at the end of the day, the Secretary of Education, as of today, is leaving the position. Now, Georgina Harrison was a controversial appointment to the role. Uh, It should be noted, first of all, that she's only been in the role for a couple of years. She was appointed in 2021, but she was controversial for a couple of reasons. The first being that she does not have any background in education and that she is from the United Kingdom. She's been living in Australia for only a few short years and has had some experience in different areas of the public service, uh, both at federal and state levels. And then the previous Liberal National Government appointed her as the Secretary of Education in New South Wales. And so she was controversial for those reasons, not being Australian, not being Uh, not having a background in education, but also because during her tenure as secretary has been a period of time where uh, there's been some decisions made and some some strategies uh, engaged with that have not been particularly popular, that have been quite controversial, but also it has been the time where the teacher workforce crisis has uh, been certainly a hot topic of conversation and has been rapidly accelerating And Harrison was perceived by many as being more of a sort of government agent in maintaining their narrative that the crisis wasn't as bad as people suggested it was and that that the problems were being exacerbated by unions than actually taking steps to address the problem. Uh, One such example was efforts to recruit new teachers internationally. And there have been many headlines written about the fact that the government spent nearly $14 million over a couple of years and recruited only 13 teachers. And also in the last fortnight since the new government came in, they have released information that indicated that Harrison had not been upfront about the the number of people leaving the teaching profession and that in fact there were many thousands more teachers leaving the teaching profession than had been discussed. So the suggestion being that Harrison had uh, not been forthright with the public about the scale of the problem and had certainly not been effective in taking steps to address it. As Secretary, Harrison also oversaw the most recent salary negotiations and award negotiations with New South Wales teachers, which resulted in protracted industrial action and ended when the department forced through the new award through the Industrial Relations Commission of New South Wales, which has a number of provisions in it that were deeply concerning, uh, things to do with teacher professional development programs and what their relationship might be both to hierarchical structures in the school, but also to teachers' ongoing job security. Now, we hadn't yet seen policy manifest to put those clauses into practice, but that was the kind of thinking that uh, was driving the Department of Education under Harrison's leadership. Another example of something that uh, got a lot of disagreement and, and made people quite unhappy in the education space was the pursuit of a policy that was effectively performance pay. The New South Wales Department of Education had floated the idea of creating highly paid positions in the same model to highly accomplished and lead teachers that would pay identified teachers up to 50% more. 
but it was in a competitive process and there were a number of rounds of consultations held on policies about teacher recruitment and retention and something I noticed on social media today since the announcement of Harrison's departure is a number of teachers making posts about how they participated in some of those consultations and felt as though all advice and proposals were basically ignored and that this policy, which had already been discussed in the media prior to the consultation, was basically pushed through uh, ignoring all of that feedback. So as I said, Harrison, a short-lived tenure as Secretary of Education, a controversial appointment and one that was seen as being highly political in nature as opposed to necessarily being in the best interests of New South Wales education. In the wake of Harrison's departure, Deputy Secretary Murat Dizdar has been appointed as Acting Secretary. Murat Dizdar is a former New South Wales teacher. He spent some years overseas as principal of a school, I believe, in Turkey, and since returning to Australian education, has risen through the ranks of the New South Wales education system uh, from director to executive director, now to deputy secretary. He himself is a person who is not without some controversy and certainly some split attitudes. There are people who are very appreciative of his background and knowledge of what it means to be a teacher, but he also was an executive director and then deputy secretary under the Liberal National Government. And so he was the uh, face, if you like. He was responsible for delivering on some of the less popular policies that the government and the department had in place. For example, he had the job of going out and selling local schools, local decisions back in the early 2010s, a policy which is now broadly regarded as the cause of many of the problems facing New South Wales education today. It was a massive policy of deregulation and cost cutting that dismantled systems of support for schools and has left a huge amount of uh, problems in its wake, even though the policy itself has not been overturned. Because, of course, to overturn that policy would mean returning the uh, millions and millions of dollars. It was it was something like a, a recurrent amount of nearly $2 billion over four years. So we're talking about $500 million a year, if my memory serves correctly, would need to be returned into the system to overturn local schools, local decisions. And most of that money was uh, cut in the form of people's wages from non-school-based positions. So while Dizdar does have experience as a teacher, he is also associated with some of the worst policies of the previous government. He's now acting secretary and they, the government have announced that they plan to advertise that position. Whether Dizdar becomes the secretary remains to be seen, but he is certainly in a prime position to take over that role. What is particularly surprising about the departure of Harrison is that she is one of three public sector secretaries who have announced their departure today or on the 14th of, of April. And the government have acted very quickly. It's less than three weeks since the New South Wales election. And so they have acted very quickly to remove these three individuals, but have also done so amongst announcements that they do not plan to make any further changes to heads of department in the New South Wales Public Service. So it is three very targeted vacancies of secretary roles and one of the people to step in 
as relieving in one of those secretary positions is Michael Coots Trotter, who, uh, if you know anything about the history of New South Wales education, Michael Coots Trotter was what used to be known as the Director General of Education, uh, the position that then became known as the Secretary of Education under the previous Labor government back in the mid-2000s. And he is effectively the architect of the local schools, local decisions policy. So even though everyone's happy to point at local schools, local decisions and say that it is this massive problem in New South Wales education, the person who got the ball rolling, uh, Michael Coots Trotter, is still in the public service and still making policy decisions on behalf of the incoming Labor government. So exactly how much change we can expect under this new government remains to be seen. The new education minister, Pru Carr, who is also the deputy premier, she is currently engaged in a listening tour of visiting schools and talking to teachers and local communities about the needs of education. She has indicated that teacher salaries and working conditions is her number one priority as minister for education. So we will have to wait and see exactly what that looks like and what changes uh, are put in place. As I said before, department under Harrison had pushed through a new award last year, which has a couple of year lifespan, whether the government is prepared to scrap that award and start negotiations afresh will remain to be seen or whether they're going to use the time of that award to get their policies and get their ideas in place before taking action. Of course, one of the inevitable problems of the political drive of education is everyone's always thinking about the next election. And in New South Wales, we have fixed four-year terms of government. So it would not surprise me if any major changes are somewhat slow to roll out and are announced in the lead up to the next election in four years' time because education is always a policy area of public interest and any kind of positive change has its greatest political capital just before an election. That being said, they also the, gov- the government, I should say, also don't want to be seen to be sleeping too long on this issue in the event that it makes it seem like they're all talk and no action. So ultimately, the story is that the Secretary of Education has vacated the role less than three weeks after the New South Wales state election. And all eyes are now on which policies of the last government are first to be overturned and to what effect. But there is definitely change in the air for New South Wales education and we just have to wait and see what happens next. That being said, it's time to take a break now and when I return it will be with this episode's main feature, an interview with Cathy Mills, Len Unsworth and Laura Scholes about their book Literacy for Digital Futures, Mind, Body, Text, in which we discuss the nature of literacy and what it looks like in an increasingly digital world and the skills that young people need to be able to effectively be literate in the digital future they're inheriting. The Teachers' Education Review is produced by teachers for teachers, exploring ideas to help improve teaching practices around Australia and around the world. If you like the TER podcast, you can help us to promote and improve the show. If you have an idea for a feature segment, a strategy you'd like to share as part of the Teachers' Brains Trust, or if you would like to leave comments or feedback on one of our episodes, then please visit our website at terpodcast.com where you will find information on ways to contribute to the show. 
To help promote the show, leave us a rating and a review through iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, or whichever portal you use to subscribe to the show. Share your favourite episodes with colleagues, other educators that you know, or with anyone who has an interest in learning more about education. Finally, if you are organising an educational event and would like it to be considered for a feature on the Teachers' Education Review, then contact us via email at info at terpodcast.com. Thank you for supporting the Teachers' Education Review. Now please enjoy this episode's main feature. Kathy Mills, Len Unsworth and Laura Scholes are academics working for the Australian Catholic University whose areas of research collectively include literacy, literacy education and digital technology. They've recently together published the book Literacy for Digital Futures, Mind, Body, Text, which explores the concept of literacy in this rapidly changing digital world where increasingly, particularly young people, are getting their information as much from digital sources as they are from traditional means of written communication, namely printed text on paper. In this book, they argue for a different, broader conception of literacy and look at examples of just how young people have to interpret information in a new way based on particularly interactive digital technologies and some of the changing ways that information is communicated. So here now is an extended interview with Kathy Mills, Len Unsworth and Laura Scholes about literacy for digital futures. Joining me now are the authors of Literacy for Digital Futures, Mind, Body, Text. If you could please introduce yourselves. Well, hello, I'm Kathy Mills from the Australian Catholic University and I'm based in Brisbane. I'm a, a professor of digital literacies research um, and I'm talking today about our book. Hi, uh, I'm, hi everybody, I'm Len Unsworth and uh, I was a teacher for a long time uh, in Queensland and um, after that I became a professor of uh, English and Literacies Education in a few different universities, uh, Sydney, University of New England, Griffith University and now I'm at the Australian Catholic University in Sydney. Hi, I'm Laura Scholes. I also used to be a teacher, um, predominantly in prep to year three. Uh, and in Queensland, and currently I'm um, at Australian Catholic University, also in, in the Institute of um, Teacher Education and Learning Sciences, and my focus at the moment is really on improving reading experiences and reading outcomes for students. Thank you. Well, welcome to the TER podcast. In unpacking this book and, and getting into some of the content, which I suppose we should let our listeners know, also this book is available for open access uh, if people want to look at the content. Uh, you know, that was one of the, the great things. I got to actually delve into some of the content of this book before uh, before speaking to you. But one of the things that really I want to unpack at the beginning is what do you mean by literacy? Let, let's unpack this concept of literacy because you do devote a little bit of time to exactly what that means in a broader context. Oh, that's a really good question. Um, if I can just jump in here. Um, I think um, illiteracy has many different definitions, but one that has increasingly intrigued me in the 21st century is the way in which print-based um, print literacies 
are no longer the only way that we communicate. So conventionally we've thought of literacy as kind of like the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic perhaps. Um, But nowadays we're seeing that technologies are connected with literacy practices in a really uh, fundamentally different way so that when we interact with text, whether they be digitally or in print, um, they're changing all the time. And if students don't have access to the knowledge of those digital platforms, their literacy practices are you know, affected in a really significant way. And so that convergence of literacy and technology is where my research sits. Um, and it's, it, it comes through issues of uh, digital divides and access to literacy, which are really key questions. Yeah, I, I can follow up on that a bit. Um, I mean, I'm interested in uh, digital um, technology and, and literacy as well. I've been around uh, as a teacher of English and literacy for a long time, but I've come to be very clear that in today, in the 21st century that, that our kids are growing up into, we need to think of literacy as not just involving uh, print, but we've known for a long time that it involves images as well, and not only still images, but moving images. So that's a really important part of literacy, and it's not only in English, it's in the other subject areas as well. So, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I talk about uh, in, in the book is bringing um, things that people might not think of traditionally as belonging to a literacy curriculum, like coding, computer programming, into the English curriculum as well as in other subject areas. So I think these days in this um, multimedia, uh, digital, online uh, world, we need to have uh, a very broad definition of the literacies that kids are going to need in the world that they're growing up into. Mm. So following on from that, from um, what Cathy and Len have um, shared, in the volume I also talk about gaming as a legitimate text that should be used in classrooms. So when we're talking about literacies, I guess we're talking about recalibrating what some people, teachers, parents, even myself, <laughs> have thought about literacy and and opening up to these new literacies that are now becoming part of everyday life for many children. And it's really exciting that there's four states in Australia now that have just um uh, they've given access to educators to download Minecraft. So ACT just recently um, made that decision. So these these practices are coming into the classroom and so they're becoming very topical for, for teachers who want to support their students. So I suppose let's, you know, let's just throw the gate wide open. You know, you mentioned gaming there, obviously, Laura, as one key technology that is affecting literacy. What are some of the ways that technology is influencing the need to be literate or to see literacy in a different way? I think one of the big ways that we're seeing change is through the internet. So around the year 2000, um, we had a really interesting publication by the New London Group called Multiliteracies, Designs for Social Futures. And that was the first book I read that really got me thinking about how Um, techs are now interconnected and because of the rise of the internet we've now got access to texts anywhere anytime then we saw the advent of the mobile phone which brought 
a lot of text to our pockets, so to speak. Um, and then we also had the rise of Web 2, which is called the social web. So no longer were we just looking at web pages, but everyone could be a reader or writer of the web. And this changes the actual interactivity of reading and writing because we've got authors and writers in an immediate space where they can uh, toss text back and forth and we get different types of rhythms to the text. It's very different to say writing an essay in a book that's going to be read by a teacher rather than uh, worldwide audiences, for example. Yeah, I, I think about it in terms of kids' experience. So if I think of my oldest granddaughter, um, who's just left school now, but a few years ago, uh, she was crazy about the Harry Potter stories. She read all the Harry Potter stories. She watched all the Harry Potter movies several times, I might add, to the point that she could practically recite them. But not only that, there was a follow-up with the Harry Potter games and she played multiple games about Harry Potter. So, you know, from uh, an English and, and literature point of view these days, kids' experience of story and literature uh, is not just on a page in a book. Their experience of literature and the stories that mean a lot to them are via technology. And a lot of these that are available, uh, you know, portably now on iPads and smartphones and so on, the, the experience of the story is a bodily one. So you find kids, uh, you know, shaking the iPhone to mix a magic potion, for example, um, or rotating the iPhone uh, or the iPad to get a different perspective on things. So even if you think about it from the experience of kids in the, in the real world that they're, that they're living in, you just need to connect with, uh, with digital technology to, in fact, experience the literature that kids are experiencing today. Mm. And more on their, you know, social cultures that they're engaging with, social media, I guess, is something that we, we can't deny as part of kids' everyday literacy experiences. And so for a lot of kids, they need more critical um, analysis when they're either processing or composing on these kinds of sites. And, you know, schools are actually engaging in some of those um, social media um, opportunities in very academic and worthwhile ways but kids are also engaging in some of these um, social practices in in ways that you know need support and uh, can be healthy but also bring on unhealthy outcomes well just to pick up on a couple of the features that have come through in those responses obviously you're talking about the way that digital technologies make engagement more of an interactive and I think the word you used Len was embodied experience as well as just a mm. you know one of reading as well as that interactivity of either posting and responsing or engaging in community what is it that that does to our understanding of literacy or what does that do to students capacity to uh, interpret information that needs to be made the focus of something specific or a specific practice? I think that students now need to engage with different aspects of the text in that texts are now multimodal. So we talk about this a bit in the book in that students are not just dealing with print in a very predictable linear format. 
but students are actually dealing with different materialities of text. So it might be that they're doing virtual reality and they're, and they're moving around in a 3D immersive environment and there's words coming up and there's images and they have all of this information to process as well as auditory information. And so in these multimodal environments, there's lots of nuances to how these different modes interrelate. And that's a really key aspect of our work and the work in the book um, and an aspect that students have to be aware of. And interestingly, the Australian curriculum is a bit um, on the forefront of this worldwide because it actually has multimodal literacy mentioned hundreds of times. And a lot of my colleagues in the United States are very envious of teachers here um, that we have that freedom to actually address multimodal practices in the classroom and multimodal literacies and teach students about interpreting images, interpreting sound and the way that those modes work together. Yeah, I think we can we can think of it from our own experience when, I mean, we're very alert to the idea that uh, many, many uh, printed um, literary works appear in film, both for adults and for kids. Uh, and more frequently these days, they appear in at least two formats anyway, and, and probably more. Um, and uh, often we, we get into comparing the versions. And, uh, you know, some people get uh, annoyed that they think, well, you know, one version wasn't the same as the other and so on. But the so-called affordances, the what you can communicate in one mode is not exactly the same as what you can communicate uh, in a different mode. So what that means is that the interpretive possibilities that are created are different. The story might be essentially pretty much the same, but because of different emphases, different things that can be shown uh, to a greater or lesser extent, then how you read and interpret the message can be slightly different. A great example from Australia is Sean Tan's really popular story called The Lost Thing. And I think uh, many of your listeners will have both read the picture book and uh, probably quite a lot of them have seen the animated movie of The Lost Thing, which in fact, um, you know, was was very successful uh, commercially. Now, uh, the, the film uh, and the picture book are very similar in terms of the verbal content, very similar. But visually, there are some important differences. And even though the language is almost the same, the interpretive possibilities that are managed by the differences in the images are very significant. So the same kind of thing applies when you find stories on, say, uh, the iPad format. So uh, then the kids participate uh, in the affordances. So what they can do by dragging, rotating, pinching, <laughs> can change what you actually see in the story and hence can change the kind of interpretations that are possible. So building up that experience, that critical perspective on the different forms, uh, in my case, of literature that kids experience are a really crucial part of, um, of English and literacy education. So in one of the chapters in the book, um, 
we talk in depth about how the internet is changing experiences for students. And, you know, that's really changing how kids engage their mind as well in terms of having to, you know, integrate all sorts of information, fake news, disinformation, um, competing agendas and having to have a skill set that allows them to evaluate this endless amount of information. So that's really changing the, um, the cognitive skills that students need. And a lot of times they haven't been prepared for that and they are often compound, you know, they, they come across, um, I guess, algorithm bias. So AI is now giving them more information. They do a Google search or they search something of interest and then they just keep getting the same information um, that aligns with their beliefs or uh, the stance that they've taken. So there's a real need for us to be teaching kids about the criteria for evaluating these, you know, these competing sources of information, how to identify what is fake news or disinformation and, and how, you know, the criteria that they can use to evaluate websites and, and evidence. So I think that's one critical change as you move from, you know, traditional print textbooks to inquiry on the internet. I did a recent um, study with uh, middle school students and asked them how they would go about, you know, finding reliable sources and the majority said, oh, you can't trust the internet. <laughs> Don't go to the internet. <laughs> and Wikipedia is the worst. But they didn't, have any, they didn't have any criteria or skills. There are very few kids who said, well, I look at who produced a white website. I look across, you know, multiple sites of evidence. And, I, and then I would, you know, get some criteria. Does that sound right? Does that, you know, does that fit with the other evidence I've had? You know, there was a handful of kids out of 45 who had those skills and, you know, the majority were saying just stay away from the internet. But the internet is full of evidence and research and useful information. They need the skills, you know, to evaluate it. But if they were saying stay away from the internet, what was their uh, trusted source? Uh, people. <laughs> people, which was very interesting, very, um, you know, they're looking for the one truth, very black and white. I'll go and ask a person, uh, somebody at school, uh, the librarian, my parents, um, a friend. So they just wanted that one source of truth without having to wade through this endless amount of information that they would have to actually evaluate. And Laura makes a great point there. And her section of the book was really talking a lot about the mind and how students have to bring in these different intellectual cognitive skills that they bring to these new digital texts. But what the book does is it has three sections and, and the way we've thought about it is that um, the mind is one aspect that's different. The other aspect is the body. So the body's engagement with text. And that's important. We don't tend to think of the body and the mind being so connected, but they are so that when when we read something on a screen it's different for our brain than if we read it on a piece of paper if we hold something if we're moving as we speak or learn it's different than when we're sitting and so this is called embodied cognition and it's the connection between 
what we do in the physical world and how it changes the way we think and the way we process text. So that's a whole section in the book and that gets into all the AR, VR and the different technologies that have these radically revised bodily interactions that are different to the past. And the third section is the one on text. So where Len's work has come in is his ability to look at networks of textual practices in terms of all the little aspects of grammar, so the new grammars that students need. Because if teachers are going to take digital texts into the classroom, what is what are the nuts and bolts of these texts? What's What parts are new? And so that's the part where Len has done a lot of work in expanding our notion of what these grammars are so that we've got a systematic basis for looking at these new texts. So Cameron, maybe just to pick up on that uh, a little bit, um, because uh, technology is not only sort of changing literacies in the sense that you know, uh, all of us, <laughs> including the kids, are engaging with uh, digital platforms a lot. But it's also changing the literacies that we still negotiate in paper media texts. And one of the phenomenon that, that's occurring is the, uh, to use a bit of a jargonistic term, that uh, images are becoming like the rhetorical locus of texts. In other words, Texts uh, used to be organised around words with some in images accompanying. But more and more, uh, what's happening is that it's the image that's the core and text is built around an image. And it largely comes from screen-based um, platforms where material is condensed, uh, condensed through the use of images and annotations and in interpolated text blocks. So you get a lot on the screen and possibly with hyperlinks out to other screens, which are similarly condensed. <laughs> but, um, but one impact of that is that in paper media texts now, you find a lot of the presentations are in what we might call infographic formats. So again, even if it's a paper media text, the central locus are the images and the texts are interpolated and built around them. And that, that means, on the one hand, a different set of quote-unquote reading practices that integrate the images and the language as kind of one eyeful, if you like, um, and also in composing, kids are increasingly asked to compose texts that have this kind of feature. Think of the number of times kids are asked to produce things like um, PowerPoint representations of what they've learned uh, and so on. So uh, it's a different kind of reading. It's a visual-verbal integration of reading and it's a different kind of quote-unquote writing or creating. It's a visual-verbal integration of uh, text and images in text production as well. So those are changes that affect not only our interaction with digital platforms, but our interaction with paper media platforms as well. So when you talk about there being new grammars of text and new ways that information is organised and presented, and, you know, thinking back to your example, Laura, of middle school students, uh, you know, there are students in high school today who were born after the last Encyclopedia Britannica was ever printed, uh, you know, before it became an entirely <laughs> online and very multimedia presentation. How much of 
when you say there's a difference in the way we engage with print versus how we engage with multimedia text, how much of that is because of the way people are raised or what they're familiar with from an early age and how much of it is intrinsic to the way people process information visually and orally? Uh, you know, for example, and I suppose the ultimate question I'm getting towards is, is it the case that younger children are literally speaking and thinking in a different language than their teachers may be because of that generational gap? Wow, there's a lot in there, Cameron. You just asked the blockbuster question. <laughs> you there. almost need to do a study, Cameron, where you um, have younger learners processing something like, say, information on a screen versus um, a bunch of older folk reading something on a screen and then looking at the comprehension differences, which, which there, maybe there's some study specifically on that. And I was talking about this to my daughter the other day and I said, oh, look, they've found that people edit text much better when it's offline, when they're looking at a pe- like an actual printed up document. And she said, oh, yeah, but how old were the participants? She said, because I can really see errors on the screen. I find it really easy. And I thought, well, maybe that's true. Did they really have, you know, 12-year-olds in their study? Um, So I think it's a really good question. There's some researchers that are proposing that because of plasticity of the brain that younger people will and are adapting to these new, you know, platforms Mm, um, mm, mm. And there's still controversy about whether people comprehend better on print or on um, on screens, and it seems to depend on the genre. So narrative text doesn't make any difference. Information text depends on the time given. Um, it can, if it's online, it can take longer for for kids. Um, so there's a lot of research trying to find these, you know, answers to these key questions. But the the facts are that we don't know because, you know, there's kids that are growing up that had an iPad, you know, as a pacifier and we don't know yet how that's going to play out. But we do know that it, it does change what the mind does. There's cognitive overload often. There's... Um, there's fragmented um, experiences. There's no material anchors anymore. Kids can't go back to their favourite page of the book and turn the pages and smell the book. So all of these things are changing. Um, so maybe we need, a, maybe we collectively need to do some research <laughs> on that longitudinally. I mean, I've been working with students just this week doing virtual reality with a program called Titans of Space, which is an online Um, exploration about a space and it also has text for the students to read in a virtual environment so they're in fully immersed with you know a headset on they're seeing this 3d world flying through space and coming up to planets and um, some of the interesting things when I ask the students you know questions like is it easier to comprehend the text that you're seeing um, than when you are than if you're reading a book so if you're reading a book about space do you see any differences? And some of them said it's not really that you don't need concentration. They said actually there's so much going on. There's, um, you know, the planets and there's all this, you know, stuff that I want to reach out and touch and interact with. And sometimes I'm just blotting out the words because I'm more interested in the images. And so it's a different type of concentration. So it's interesting 
but it depends on the particular learning context. So even when they design virtual reality games that have the subtitles right in front of the child and when you move your head, the words are moving with you, your brain can just blot that out and you could be focused on all the other things that are interesting you in that environment. Um, And so it very much seems to be context dependent and also different learners have different approaches. So watching, you know, a dozen kids use the same program, they all interacted with it very differently. Some wanted to actually do more haptic engagement. Some were reading the dashboard to get deeper information and wanting to get into the words more and deeper knowledge. And others were just sort of wanting to understand the relative sizes of the planets by traveling through more of space to sort of experience it more holistically and gather information through their senses. Um, So I think it really does depend on the platforms and also the learner as well. Um, Another perspective that's important to add into that is the social perspective. So there's a a fairly uh, strong consensus that all literacies are so-called socially constructed. In other words, the literacies that we can access and use are the literacies that we have the opportunities to engage with. And that depends on lots of things, uh, uh, as I'm sure you know, listeners will, will understand, not the least of which is our uh, socioeconomic positioning. <laughs> so, you know, the, you, you will have seen in the, in the news uh, over the, the COVID period the differential access that uh, kids from different social groups had to uh, learning at home, depending on the accessibility experience and so on, uh, that they have had with respect to the hardware and also to some extent the um, related experiences that their parents uh, had had. So, you know, these things do have like individual components and individual capabilities and preferences and so forth that that kids um, exhibit, but they also have a very strong kind of social determinant of the nature of literacies that people are able to engage. Well, to pick up on that, Len, because it sort of goes back to something, Kathy, you said at the beginning about focusing your research on access to technology as well, uh, which is that hmm. if, you know, if some, some schools are obviously going to be better situated to engage in digital literacies in a more meaningful and, and effective way. Absolutely. And do we risk, uh, I suppose, how, how do we, how effectively can it be addressed in schools that ha- do not have that level of access so that we don't end up creating sort of a two-tiered or multi-tiered system where you have people who are highly mm. digitally mm. literate and those who then are mm. not even given the opportunity to develop those literacies? See, I think this is uh, a really fundamental um, issue that has applied long before we got, um, you know, uh, oriented to be thinking about the digital technology. There always has been um, this kind of socio-economic um, stratification of people's access to literacies, um, and it's it's the case. Um, you know, like uh, if you think about communities where the opportunities that uh, parents have had for education, for the kinds of literate practices that they engage in, are very different from those of, uh, say, other uh, communities. 
Now that does indeed have an impact on any kind of, of literacies that students are trying to uh, negotiate at school and, and in the community. And that, that social stratification is a fact of life that, that many people would like to brush under the carpet uh, or think that, you know, it's something that schools can compensate for. It's extremely difficult, extremely difficult for schools to manage, especially where you have extremes of um, educational advantage and, uh, and disadvantage. So it's a, it's a kind of phenomenon, it's a part of the social structure that, that we live with, which has been and will be with us for it's a long time. It's a really time. complex issue. I mean, I've seen lots of projects uh, where um, researchers have gone to communities to try to give access, better access to digital practices. And often, um, you know, sometimes we can be misguided about what people actually need. I remember doing a program um, in America with a group of students who were on scholarships and they were making digital uh, art using um, Arduino kits, which are little tech, have technical components and then they can put them into clay sculptures or artwork and so on. So we're teaching them programming and a whole bunch of different literacies. At the end of the program, we approached the parents and said, look, the kids have got their Arduino kits. They can take those home and use them. And this parent came up to me and said, oh, um, can you use it from a mobile phone? And I said, no, no, because um, you need a computer. Like, do you have a computer? And she said, no, we don't. We just use my phone to get the internet and that's that's all we have in our house. And I thought, well, that's an example of where we make assumptions that, you know, all these young people are doing digital stuff and they're all online, yet we've got families who still don't have one computer in a home mm. amongst a whole family. Now, how does that compare to a lot of middle-class families who might have multiple devices per person in the household? They might have a phone and a laptop or a phone, a laptop and maybe an iPad you know, and or, or, or a watch <laughs> with a screen. Uh, and so we have this um, in, incredible complexity. I think um, just assuming that schools are going to fix the problem is not really the answer. And, and as well, just assuming that digital practices, practices should stay outside of schools um, where everyone has access isn't true either. And so I guess it's something that has to have a multi-strategy approach to it. Well, and it's a policy issue, isn't it? Because, mm. you know, we've, we're moving to online assessment and, you know, PISA now, I think since 2018, has been assessing reading online and they've changed what it means to read. It now is more like, you know, information literacy, multiple sourcing and more equivalent to, you know, internet reading. So we've got global and national assessment moving to online um, platforms. So we may see what's happened in the US where that di divide between kids' reading abilities becomes, you know, even more accentuated. You know, it used to be talking about the differences between boys and girls. In the US now they're talking about, you know, the access that schools and homes have to digital devices and how that's impacting on outcomes. So as much as teachers, you know, always, I've always 
support do the best that they can to support their students, they also need the infrastructure. They need Wi-Fi bands. They need the computers. They need the software. And they need tech people to support that. So it becomes a policy issue. One thing that you mentioned earlier as well, uh, Laura, particularly was the need for students to be able to navigate misinformation or disinformation and, you know, fake news, you brought that phrase up, which has become sort of the, I think that's become a bit of a, a watchword of the last decade or so, particularly in the, since 2016. But how much, I suppose the question I want to ask is, how much of the need for an increased focus on these digital literacies is, is about the state of the world as it is, as opposed to it actually being beneficial to the learning process? You know, Laura, you mentioned before that, um, you know, often engaging with digital text can come with cognitive overload. And Kathy, you were saying that students talked about needing to block out so much information to be able to focus. Uh, what are the actual benefits to engaging with digital literacies as opposed to just needing to teach students to deal with the world as it currently is? Well, to be active citizens in the world now, they have to have you know, those literacies and digital platforms. And that's part of learning, is learning how to generate knowledge and, you know, being able to decipher what is valid and evidenced. So it is about learning. It's about um, generating um, knowledge now, but also in further education or in, in the work environment that increasingly requires is kinds of skills, you know, for decision-making, critical thinking, problem-solving. These are real-world skills that require beyond black and white thinking. So we have to be able to think, you know, um, about what knowledge means, where is it coming from, how does it influence us, and, you know, the, the days of didactic teaching from a textbook about content are over, and we need to you know, be able to build on knowledge and and use that and apply that in the real world. So I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's something that's critical for learning. I think the technology does offer a lot of um, support for students to learn literacies at an earlier age. For example, the iPad, you can have quite young children, you know, two-year-olds interacting with the alphabet on a on an iPad. Um, I've seen a lot of um, programs which have really high engagement from the learners just by having a digital platform is getting kids engaged. And that's one of the things, you know, with our virtual reality program with, um, we did find the students were just wow, like they were just stepping into the environment and just in awe and saying, I could just do this all day. And other kids were saying, you know, I don't like reading a long book, but this is just really, I, I hardly even can, you know, think about the fact that I'm learning. I just am. Um, and so, you know, we do see that kids, many kids are switched on by these um, new practices. And so um, I see that all the time in our programs. I've worked with students across um, a whole range of different abilities and different um, ethnicities. I've worked with Indigenous students um, and just seen the way we can integrate things like their um, visual practices like art and uh, storytelling and integrate those into digital storytelling 
for really high engagement for many kids who have disengaged in many ways from schooling. But when when they have these practices, it does give them that extra, I guess, uh, you know, extra motivation to want to engage with these kinds of texts. In any case, it's uh, it's not a choice. Um, like Laura said, uh, to survive in the, in the world increasingly, you have to learn how to make meaning uh, digitally. I mean, in our own experience, it's, I'm sure many of the listeners will, will, will um, recognise that, you know, you, it's very difficult with a lot of institutions to find a person that you can actually speak to. Uh, you can't speak to people. You can't get someone to tell you. Um, if you try the call centre, you can sit on hold for ages and ages and ages. On the other hand, if you can navigate the uh, online uh, platforms, then you know it's it's possible to to pursue what what you want to pursue largely anyway um, online. But we can't assume that people just know how to do it, or that just by getting online they'll find out how to do it. Um, explicit teaching, teaching um, not only students but you know some adults as well, how these platforms make meaning, how the visual representation conveys certain things that you need to pay attention to. Because if you just look at the print, you're not going to get the whole message, you know. So learning how these platforms with their various affordances make meaning and explicit teaching of students how they work is, has got to be part of uh, literacy education into the future. Well, speaking of that, uh, you know, Cathy, you mentioned earlier that digital literacy is mentioned in the national curriculum many times compared to especially some of our uh, some other countries that we might compare ourselves to. But the other complaint that's always, or not complaint, the other concern that's always raised about the national curriculum is there's so much content to be uh, worked through. What's your advice for how to incorporate the need for this explicit teaching of digital literacies with a lot of content that needs to be delivered? Well, I think um, with multimodal literacy, it's the actual word that they use in the curriculum, it's integrated right through the different subjects. So it's in English, it's in um, second language learning, it's in all of those different areas. And so it doesn't have to be thought of as something that's tacked on. It can be very much integrated in the kinds of materials that we use. So if students are doing an English unit on a particular piece of literature, they can then look at all the um, paratexts online that relate to that, whether it be a video game or whether it be um, a website, um, whether it be some sort of um visual or electronic source and so those things can just be layered in a in a kind of natural way I suppose um, and and things like um, assessments many students do multimodal assessments but they might start it as a print-based text for example a script for something that is then turned into something else um, with visual images and audio or presented or so on in multiple modes. So we can embed these print-based literacies, you know, in quite fluid ways um, into assessments. And then assessments just need, a, you know, minor adaptions in a sense to make sure that, yes, those, you know, essential print-based basics are covered, but in addition, you know, these other 
factors in interpreting texts have been addressed as well. And teachers have been doing that, I guess, quite well in Australia for for quite a number of years. Um, and, And it does mean that a lot of teachers are making assessment rubrics to assess very unique textual products from their students and so on. I think that work is continu- always continuing. I think there's a political um, perspective here, Cameron. We, we could look at a political perspective. So, uh, and I think it has to do with the tremendous pressure on teachers in their work days. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, a, a lot of the emerging uh, digital affordances and, and opportunities um, are ones that uh, if teachers become familiar with them uh, themselves, they also need time to look at how this kind of integration can occur in the curriculum in the, and in their classrooms. Um, and it's absolutely unrealistic to expect teachers to find, somehow or other find time given the pressures of their workloads at present um, to really explore, you know, and investigate and look at how this kind of integration could occur. So, for example, in our book, we talk about one project, which is this coding um, animated narratives. So in the English classroom, coding or computer programming can be integrated with English teaching of narrative composition interpretation uh, technique. But it takes a bit of time to get used to how to do it. So I think, you know, it's, there's an important political dimension here and it has to do with the current, uh, I think, fairly strong community support for looking carefully at what are we asking our teachers to do and how realistic is it and can't we organise to support them in such a way that they have the opportunities to engage in the kind of professional learning that ultimately would help to make you know, dealing with the, the curriculum a little easier. But you can't do it unless there's some kind of political will to support teachers to, to help them to manage it. Yeah. I'd just like to return to the Minecraft Education Edition as an example of how to integrate, you know, digital um, literacies across the curriculum so, as I mentioned, it's now um, been approved in four states in Australia to be downloaded and used in classrooms. But a lot of schools aren't taking it up because um, even though it has application to math, science and literacy and there's a, a plethora of free activities aligned to the Australian curriculum, they don't have the time or the skill set or the experience or the confidence to engage with that. So I was at a school just last week at P to 12 with over one of the largest in Queensland with um, almost 4,000 students and they're really keen to engage with Minecraft to, you know, look at how that could engage boys in in digital text. But they said, oh, we don't even have the software downloaded. We don't have, we don't even know where to start. So there's this desire and there's it's like there's the desire and then there's the um the the um platforms that would enable it but in the middle we need something to support teachers and schools and the structures to come together yeah in i mean in my experience in schools 
it's often been the result of either an individual or a group of passionate teachers taking it on board as a personal project rather than a systemic thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that mirrors your observations. Yes, it definitely yeah. helps if a principal yeah. is on board. So we've been involved with some projects where there were university school collaborations and when we had really good uptake from the principal, they provided the supports for the teachers for the professional development and, and getting key teachers to be sort of a catalyst for um, for rolling out those multimodal literacy practices in their year levels and, and in a sort of systematic way and then growing it in a realistic way across the school over a number of years. Um, and so I've seen it done really well, but it does need that support um, at least from the principal's side. And then as well, you know, doing collaborations with universities or other um, organisations outside the school, I think, can help as well to add to those resources. So thinking again about how this manifests in schools and teaching, given that you each had your own particular perspective and content that you contributed to this book, I'd like to ask each of you, for a teacher reading this book, what is the the main takeaway you would hope they would get from, from your particular sections? Well, my section, um, apart from the, the introduction and the conclusion, um, is the um, mind, is uh, the body. So the connection between how students relate to text in, in more embodied ways or engage their bodies differently than in the past. We've always had bodies. We've always, you know, picked up books and kids have chewed on books and had board books and bath books and all sorts of things. And so it has had a tactile and an element, but we need to be aware of how these different material engagement with texts are changing more rapidly now than in the past. So where texts were relatively predictable and stable in the past, we're seeing a kind of exponential curve of change. And so in my book, I talk a lot about um, in the in the body section, a lot about the different senses that we use. So there's a section on um, on audio. There's a section on taste and smell, and its connections to how we interpret information as well. So there's some quite uh, new research there, um, which I think a lot of teachers will find quite intriguing. Um, and many teachers have been engaging with. Uh, sort of sensory type activities for students for some time. And it, there are uh, philosophies of teaching that sort of stem back to those kind of, I guess, Montessori type traditions. But it's looking at texts in this way that how students are going to engage with those texts physically does affect the way our brain is going to remember that information and process that information. And if teachers are aware of that, it can really help when they're structuring their lessons um, with text. So, Cameron, maybe I'll hark back to the uh, the coding animated um, narratives uh, example um, because we've been working uh, on a project with uh, Year 6 teachers in the primary school and Year 7 English teachers uh, in the secondary school, none of which have had any prior experience or knowledge with computer programming or coding, zero. Um, And so far, uh, we've worked across four schools with 10 teachers. Uh, 
Uh, in two of those schools, the schools themselves have decided to extend the program to all year five and year six classes in, in their schools. And so what, what's happened is that with uh, going from no experience at all with a modest opportunity for some targeted professional learning, those English teachers and those year six teachers have managed to conduct very successful programs of having the students in their class code these uh, animated micro-narratives demonstrating that they can meet the English curriculum requirements for, uh, you know, creating uh, narrative texts and increasing the kids' um, understandings of how to interpret visual texts, um, moving image texts, uh, and so on. So, you know, I think we talked today in, like, necessarily, I guess, in fairly general terms, but we should point out that our book is replete with practical examples of teachers doing things with students. And, and if we can organise some time to support teachers with a modest amount of uh, opportunity for professional learning, I think, you know, very significant um, innovative work can take place. So in my section of the book, I look at some of the new reading practices um, that are emerging and and probably just highlight for teachers things they already know that, you know, there's this lack of deep reading and kids are, you know, jumping from hyperlink to page to page and um, there's often um, there's often some, you know, issues for teachers when they're trying to get that deep comprehension. So it will just confirm from research some of those things that they're probably seeing on a daily, you know, basis. But then it also adds some real-life strategies about, you know, how can we engage with students when they're doing inquiry, you know, learning if they're approaching a project. Here's some steps that we can scaffold in the classroom. Um, how can we get students to think about knowledge you know, in more evaluative way? How can we move kids from thinking about just the truth, black and white um, beliefs to more, you know, strategies to get them to thinking about subjective perspectives that, you know, there are different beliefs and then how to evaluate. So there's actual steps there that are concrete things that teachers could trial and, you know, there's some examples of, you know, application to setting an assignment for students and, and how to scaffold through that. So try to make it um, research-informed to, can, you know, give a little bit more illuminate, you know, illuminate some of the things that are happening and why those things they might be seeing are happening. But also here's some steps to support students and to, you know, advance their critical thinking that's going to go across the curriculum and improve their outcomes. And Laura's section also has a really great chapter on video games for literacy, which is very popular. I'm getting lots of people asking for copies of it. They don't realise the whole book is open access and I'm getting one-on-one requests for that chapter. Um, for some reason, that seems to be um, 
quite of interest to researchers and teachers at the moment as well. Yeah, because I talk about how that is actually developing, you know, an evaluative uh, or advanced epistemology because kids are making decisions quickly. So it's, it's, it's teaching them to focus um, and it's actually really good for kids with ADHD and they've been using it with children with reading, um, you know, needing reading support. So it's about the executive functions that become very focused and they develop these really hot, you know, home skills. Um, so well, that's good to hear, Cathy. Yes. <laughs> uh, Cameron, I'd like to include an ad uh, before we stop uh, for the Australian Catholic University. And if schools uh, have a look at this book and decide they want to get something going on literacy for digital futures in their schools or their systems, Contact us at ACU. Well, I will make sure there's a link uh, not only to the full text of the book but also to your profiles and contact details on your various institute websites. So, Kathy, Len, Laura, thank you very much for your time and for taking the time to put together this fascinating exploration of what literacy means in this increasingly digital world. Thanks, Cameron. Thanks for the opportunity, uh, Cameron. Thanks, Cameron. And that was Kathy Mills, Len Unsworth and Laura Scholes discussing literacy for digital futures. As mentioned in the interview, the book is open access and you can find a link in the show notes for this episode to the full text of the book that is available to read online or download in various digital formats. You can also find links to their profiles and their contact details at the Australian Catholic University, particularly if you would like to uh, get involved in some of the projects that Ken Unsworth was referring to in that interview. All those links and resources are available at terpodcast.com. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget, if you are able to support the ongoing work of the TER podcast with just a few dollars a month, you can go to patreon.com forward slash TER podcast, where for as little as $3 a month or about $1.50 an episode, you can sign up as an early career patron to help us meet the ongoing and rising costs of producing and hosting a podcast. TER Podcast has always been advertisement-free. We never enter into any commercial arrangements with organizations or individuals for content or for interviews and never host paid advertising. And so unless there is some uh, wealthy philanthropist out there who wants to sponsor a little Australian educational podcast, we otherwise look to listener contributions to help us keep this podcast going. So again, please go to patreon.com forward slash TER Podcast. There are four tiered ranks. Uh, $3 a month gets you a shout out in the month that you sign up. If you sign up at the $6 a month level, you get notified of upcoming interviews with guests so that you can suggest questions or participate in that conversation in some way. If you sign up at the $10 a month level, you get not only the same uh, contributions to interview questions, but also get a monthly shout out at the end of every month. There is a fourth tier, the $50 a month tier, which exists because Patreon said you should really put some ridiculous out of the way goal on your platform to make the other tiers seem more appealing. That's, uh, that's how the sausage is made, I suppose. But uh, that being said, feel free to sign up for $50 a month if you feel so inclined. But that does bring us to the very end. So I'll be back in a fortnight with another regular episode. And until then, this has been the Teacher's Education Review. 
Thank you for listening to the Teacher's Education Review. All opinions expressed in this episode are those of the individual speakers only and do not represent the views of their employers or any other affiliated organisations. For links, show notes and information on how you can contribute to the Teacher's Education Review, be sure to visit terpodcast.com. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network. AEON.net.au